an oasis of truth, free speech, and good conversation in the vast, barren, stinking hot wasteland that is the New World Order. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. I was worried for a second. I, I couldn't tell. It seemed like Command Central couldn't hear me. Did I intuit that right, Rod? Yeah, I couldn't hear you either, Lee. Okay, so I didn't realize it till the last second, and then I adjusted the thing. But obviously, you can hear me now. I'm not a ghost, right? <laughs> no, you, I can hear you now. You, you're coming out loud and clear. Because there's a few things. In theory, we, we have the video set up going again in case anyone needed to see me. I can't imagine why. I'm scruffier than the last time I was on camera for the show. I admit that. Do you know what it is? With the way I feel and the eyesight and the unsteadiness, I don't want to shave every day, Rod. Do you feel me? Do you understand my laziness and not wanting to have to stand there and do the whole shaving thing every day? Yeah, no, I, hear, I feel you on that, Lee. And even, now, now, by the way, speaking of hygiene problems, the breaking news is that my former boss, Steve Bannon, and I'll talk about what they address him as in a second, has been convicted to no one's surprise. Rod, are you surprised? No, not at all, not at all. Now, are you surprised the Biden administration is seeking a death penalty? on this charge. <laughs> I, I didn't hear that one, but no, you, you're not gonna get a fair uh, jury trial in DC. That is, you can take all, put all your money in the bank and put and bet on a not fair trial. But I will say, I, I don't, I think he did violate, he, look, the fact is, what what's not in doubt is the underlying facts of this case. He was called to testify, right, Rod? He did not show up, and he did not give them one piece of paper they asked for. So clearly, he was in contempt of Congress's order, right? Yeah, that part. But, uh, um, you know, I, we're going to have on uh, Tyler Nixon, but I think there's a... Uh a legal argument because uh, uh, for the majority of the time he was under um, executive privilege for the president until lately until the last week I believe he, uh, Trump released him right right there's actually a Latin phrase for it when you the underlying facts you admit but you're saying I'm not guilty for some other reason so I tend to think Steve should not spend a night in prison I think this is an invalid committee because it's unfair because the Republicans, there's no real opposition. Do you see what I'm saying, Rod? This is like a, a courtroom trial where defense attorney has an attorney, but there's no prosecutor or vice versa. You need both sides, right? right? Exactly. Do you agree with me? Yeah, and then we've come to find out uh, today uh, that uh, Trump ordered the National Guard to keep uh, January 6th events uh, safe. 
Also, the FBI was let know, but uh, the January 6th committee doesn't want to let you know that or let the public know that. Yes. And so, you know, I don't have mixed feelings about the verdict. This is an improper hearing, in my opinion. And therefore, I don't want anyone prosecuted under it, including Steve. But the facts, the, you, you see what I'm saying? The, the, the facts aren't in question. No one's saying, no, Steve actually appeared. You just missed him. You, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right, right. And I did, I did notice, because uh, I, I recorded his uh, when he came out. Uh, out of the courtroom, he was wearing all black, four layers of black. So I don't know if he's trying to, if he said, you know, self sauna himself, and he's trying to lose weight or something. So I don't know what he's going for. I told you, it's uh, he heard black was slimming, so he covered himself in it. But it's the man in black look with Steve Bannon. I told you, I was not being oddly insulting. I was being accurately insulting. And so Bannon. Because I started to say this yesterday, when I see Bannon speak, I like Bannon. I like what he says in speeches. He is a populist in in speech, and he speaks out against neocons. Have you noticed that, Rod? That he's pretty good on a, on a stump. Yeah, no, no. We talked about that yesterday. He, he is, and I, you know, I give him credit even today. When he came out outside the courtroom and he gave his speech and he called out Benny Thompson, why why he didn't come to face him, to face him, uh, you know he had, he did he he has his way with the mic, but uh, like you said, his actions speak a different uh, a different outcome to that. Now I'll tell you, the the other thing that's weird for me, it's and it's again me, so it's somewhat a personal experience, but because I work for Steve and know Steve and have Steve's phone number and have talked to him. We don't talk anymore. We haven't talked for about three years, I think. Could be four. But uh, Bannon, because I've talked to him privately, you know, over drinks. And you, I, I think I know him. Does that make sense, Rod? Like, I, I think I know him because I, I know him. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I feel like I, I get him. Steve is from Norfolk, Virginia. Do you know Norfolk? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, uh, my fiance's niece is uh, going to school there. So, yeah. Okay, so you know Norfolk. It's, it's uh, a country sort of community, right? It's a city as far as the country is concerned. And it's a, lot a big, of naval, big naval base there, right, Rod? Yeah, huge naval ships down there, yeah. My, my mother was from Norfolk, and her family is from Norfolk. And my mother, who's passed away, actually, my mother told me once, she was in the USO. You know, the girls you could go if you were in the Army in World War II and you wanted to dance with a girl you'd go down to USO, right? Does it make sense, Rod? Yeah, that makes sense. So my mother worked at the USO, and Steve Bannon's father 
was from Norfolk, and he was in World War II and in Norfolk. And I mentioned why well, I just mentioned to you to Steve about my mother being the SO. He said, well, how old is your mother? And I told him, and his father is about the same age as my mother was, which means they were likely in the USO at some point. What I'm saying is Steve and I could be brothers. Did you hear what I'm saying, Rod? It's horrifying. <laughs> well, you, you, you need some of that Seinfeld money, Lee, so you, you got a little claim to that or something. Right. What I'm saying is, if you ever see that Steve and I actually have the same small tattoo near the back of our neck or something, tell me, because I'm afraid. It adds a Harry Potter-like twist to an already complex relationship. But no, what I know about Steve, because I know Novik, is that Steve's a real working class, but working class Navy family. Can you picture it? Right? Steve's from humble beginnings. Do you see what I'm saying, Rod? Right, right. And you know, from some people who come from humble beginnings and get around money, Steve worked for Goldman Sachs, don't forget. And some people from a poor background, they get around money and they make a vow to themselves. I ain't going back. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, for surely. I know I know a few people like that. So I think I know Steve. I think he got around money and he grew up in Norfolk, working class, and he and filthy rich is more fun than working class, he decided. And it's hard to argue with him. But he doesn't want to go back to poor. And so he knows what side of the bread the butter goes on. And he knows if he finds billionaires, Mercer, this Chinese guy, I forget he's got two names, but the, the, who he works for now, he realizes if you find a billionaire and you help him do what he wants to do politically. Like maybe it's take over China. I, I don't know what this billionaire wants, but I assume it's take over China in some way. So Bannon goes in and talks a good game and gets a billionaire to want Steve Bannon on his side. Cause he's a smart guy. Does it make sense, Rod? Steve's racket, do you see? Yeah, it makes sense, uh, you know, morally uh, or ethically, whichever way you want to look at it. I don't know if I could do it necessarily, but, uh, you know, for some people, enough money, they'll do anything. But there's plenty of people around town. It's not even a question for. In fact, most of the people who've got to a position of power in D.C., how to make that choice at some point. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, I've spoken to these people, Lee. Uh, so yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. And so I think Steve, my understanding of Steve, I think he's a populist at heart, but only as much as he can be 
when you, and and here's where the money's from. The the money on the conservative side is all from pro-Israel, pro-Zionist people. And someone told me that, but it's easy to figure out. It's easy to look up. And I'll just say Sheldon Adelson. He's one person, but when you look at the, the disproportionate amount of pro-Israel money and the fact that, you know, I, I feel the same way about Trump to some extent too. Trump, I can see where he's compromised, right? And we've talked about the Zionism thing before. This is not a Jewish thing. It's a Israel thing. And there's financial and foreign policy reasons and reasons of empire that one might support Israel that have nothing to do with Judaism or any religion in any way. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, for surely. For she, for, uh, for surely, uh, you know, um, even Donald Trump himself uh, played the clip where he talked about uh, Israel owning Congress at one time. So yeah, I know what you're talking about. The guest today, I'm excited about it, is Tyler and a half. Our guest in the first hour at the half hour point is the great Tyler Nixon. Then we'll try to get him to hang out as guest host for the rest of the show. In the second part of the show, Todd Benjamin from the Center for Immigration Studies. And I got into that Bannon line, I forgot. I'm excited, you know, but I don't feel good for what happened to Bannon at all. I've got my problems with him, but this is wrong. There's more, the backstory. I was so excited about the Bannon thing. So let's go to the calls, 202-521-1320. Tarif, is your boss been put in jail today? <laughs> My boss? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> your boss. Well, that's... That's why, because Bannon was the guy I worked for. He was my immediate boss at Breitbart. So it really is like, it's like if I, because I did. At one point, I worked at McDonald's. And it would be like if I saw, oh, there's Billy the manager on TV everywhere. And that's what it's like. It's the guy I used to work for on TV everywhere. So, Tarif, go ahead. What did you call about? Thanks for waiting. Thank you for taking my call. I got four quick comments. First comment is this: Alex McCurris and Alex Christopher talking about the trip with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, right? That's upsetting China. So I think what the they, what they were trying to say is that maybe the neocons are sending Nancy Pelosi out to test China to see how they will react. You know, not thinking that they'll do what they'll say, or whatever. But the rumor is China might close down the airspace around. Taiwan, that can, you know, but if they don't do it, I mean, situations with Taiwan can become worse because of NASA Pelosi's going there, which we all know NASA Pelosi is the third person in charge because she's right after the, the VP. She's the Speaker of the House. So China's upset about that. My, my second comment, um, Colonel McGregor and, and also uh, um, Alex McCurris brought up this, that it seems like Russia going to make another push and the Dumbass, because they uh, started to gather up more and more troops. 
to push in the, on the bass region to take out those positions in the bass. Um, we're gonna see if that's gonna happen. Um, a third comment: there are reports in the media that you get a whole bunch of these crazy, evil, sex let's call these people on um, pedophiles from Britain's going to Poland, playing, praying on Ukrainian, I mean, praying on Ukrainian children, which is sick. I mean, the same thing happened to Haitian children some years ago when they had an earthquake down. So we gotta find a ways how to stop that. Um, my last comment. Um, <clears throat> I wonder. Oh, I, I guess when the hearing's over, I can't wait when Larry C. Johnson comes out with his his evidence of January sixth that he collected, so we can all see some evidence um, exposing that it was a inside job. You know what I'm saying? Hopefully. Well, I've heard. I've heard last night was the last public hearing. So I've heard they're about to wrap it up. So this is as good as they've got, Tarif. What you see is what you get. Is it? Is it not, not Larry uh, Johnson turned to come out with his evidence. You know what I'm saying? So we're going to see what's going to happen coming up. Well, I, thanks to the culture of great calls as usual. I almost think there should be a shadow January 6th committee asking the questions that need to be asked, the stuff that Larry Johnson's raising about a Nazi theoretically brought over from Ukraine to participate in January 6th. Ray Epps should be brought up. I would almost like to see a shadow committee. Does that make sense, Rod? For all the degrees swimming around D.C., and none of them could have thought of that yet, Lee. You know what I mean? Yeah, because there there are questions. You know, think about the Ray Epps thing. What does it mean if the government had planted somebody to act as an agent provocateur to make Trump supporters go into the Capitol. Think about that. And and really think about it. What does that mean? Is that a, for instance, here's a simple question. Is it a crime? I would think, I, you know, I would think so, Lee. I mean, you're, you're inciting a riot. Uh, you, you have an Asian provocateurs inciting a riot. Um, the number of them is what's the, uh, the real question. There's, I don't think there's a denial anymore of that, that there was, uh, even DC Capitol police, we have federal, uh, possibly federal. I mean, we do have federal agent provocateurs. Uh, we have that woman who, you know, her non-denial. So, um, it's just a number that we're, we need to get account of. But what I'm suggesting is it's a good idea sometimes to think two moves down, down the chessboard. And people at this point are still hoping that step one gets taken with wraps, which is just ask them some basic questions, right? But go beyond that. If he is what he says he is, it means someone, some organization put him up to it on the 5th, on January 5th. So there was an agent provocateur 
if he was connected to a government agency, fine, let's say it was the FBI. If he was connected to the FBI, the FBI was inciting people to go inside the Capitol on the 5th. What are the implications of that, Rod? Was the FBI under Trump politicized for Joe Biden and the Democrats? It would appear so, right? I mean, just at a basic level, if that happened with Ray Epps the way we think it did, it means that the FBI was politicized for the Democrats, correct? Correctly, uh, that's correct. And uh, like Scotty said uh, a couple of days ago on here, we still haven't, I mean, they don't even talk about the bombs they're planted at the DNC and RNC anymore. So you're right about that. Right, and even even the, the, the fact that the FBI could have been biased for the for one side for it happens to be the Democrats, but that's sedition. It's a pre-baked kind of sedition, a microwave sedition, but that is a threat to democracy. And when you combine that with the fact that a major metropolitan newspaper, the New York Post, was censored on social media and cover was provided by 50 former CIA officials. Remember that part, Rod. When the Hunter Biden laptop story was buried, 50 former CIA people all signed a letter blaming a foreign government, Russia. That was a complete fallacy made up. That was a lie. 50 CIA officials lied. Think about that. To bury true information that was, I would say that laptop, Rod, tell me if I'm being hyperbolic here, but that evidence seems to be containing evidence of a crime. It seems like Joe Biden may have been getting a kickback from evidence that I've seen that was on that laptop. Hunter Biden talked about 10% for the big guy at one point. That seems to be a reference to give the president a kickback about Hunter's business dealings. That would be a crime, right? Is that hype rod or am I accurate? No, you're right on target, Lee. Uh, I had even before the laptop came out, uh, somebody, you know, uh, Peter Schweizer had written his book uh, about two years before the laptop came out. And so once the laptop came out, just confirmed what Peter Schweizer had put in his book. Right. And 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 the fact is. No one denies any of the facts that I pointed out. Now everyone agrees, including the mainstream media, that the Biden laptop was real and that those messages were real. But they don't pursue that story in any way. If, if you know, if Donald Trump misspoke, they brought out a team of fact checkers to, you know, correct what was obviously just he misspoke. Whereas Biden can get away with open corruption. And it seems like the CIA and whoever 
was behind rafts being there and urging people to go into the Capitol. That's the thing. The Times, in their story, mislabels Ray Epps. They say he directed people to the Capitol. But you've seen that video, right, Rod? Lee, uh, it's funny that you brought that up. And you're 100% right. Uh, the New York Times, I think his name's Aaron, wrote that, uh, you know, Ray Epps told people to go to the Capitol, which when he specifically said go into the Capitol. And then we had uh, today... I think it was a uh, face the nation Twitter put out that Lee Lee Selden said he was attacked. Right. The Lee Selden thing, the gubernatorial candidate Republican was attacked. Did you see that footage, Rod? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Lee, it was clearly on footage. The guy had a, uh, like a make uh, a katana type knife. It's like shaped like a kitty that fits between two, uh, two of your fingers. And but, I mean, it's clear. Yeah, go ahead. But, but the guy, when I heard a guy with a knife attack Zeldin, I expected the guy was going to be running at the guy or lunging. And he just kind of walked. What What happened there? I mean, I'm not saying he didn't attack him, but it was not. It was an oddly non-aggressive attack. Would you agree with that, Rod? Yeah, he kind of, you know what I mean? It wasn't like a big knife. Like I said, that's what I was saying. It fits in between the two fingers. So if anybody, you know, I mean, he should have been led on stage anyway. I see what you're saying. But, you know, he didn't have a, a big knife or anything like that. So when you hear knife attack, it's not a, it's not as big as a knife to draw attention to security. He did attack him with a knife, technically. But it's just not what I pictured. And I'm going to say this. He looked like he had mental problems. Did you catch that from your brief view? He looked like a guy was trying to connect with him in a weird way. Yeah, he was trying to get conversational with uh, Lee. Uh, not you, the other Lee, <laughs> Lee Zeldin. And uh, yeah, but then obviously Lee Zeldin sees the knife in his hand. That's when he grabs at it. So he actually, he was, uh, he acted pretty fast with reflex. His reflex worked way better than Joe Biden's. Now, the other big headline is Ukraine and Russia have signed a deal in Istanbul. It was brokered by the UN and by Erdogan from Turkey. Now, the thing that's significant about that deal, and the media is making it out like, oh, they've done this deal, so now grain can ship. The thing stopping the grain has been Ukraine the whole time. And they even sort of kind of admit it because why would you need to get a deal if Ukraine wasn't holding up? You wouldn't need to deal with them. Right. You see what I'm saying, Rod? <laughs> yeah, reason... I, I saw people talking about that uh, on videos this morning, yeah. And they, they, but they won't, they, they make it seem like well, Russia started this grain crisis. And Ukraine, did you see they wouldn't even do a picture and ceremonial handshaking? between Russia and Ukraine. That's how bad relations are. And I've talked about, I see Zelensky starting to lose it a little bit. When you start firing one of your closest friends who is heading one of your top governmental agencies and suddenly he's a Russian, that sounds like someone losing it to me. Maybe, maybe he is, but 
I'm seeing even the way they threw a tan. Did you see the, the tantrum they threw and wouldn't post for pictures, Rod? I just I just read the fact that they didn't post for pictures because I was actually looking for some type of ceremony, like you said. But I just read it. I didn't see any type of uh, tantrum. But um, you can tell me about it. Yeah, come on. You you can end the picture for the kids. Do it for the kids. Okay. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about more of the Washington foolishness with the great Tyler Nixon here on The Backstory. backstory and on the radio on 105.5 fm am 1390 in washington dc what a great way to go into the weekend a tyler nixon weekend closer on a hot weekend for people all over the country what more fun and informative hey tyler how you doing is this norfolk's own lee banahan i mean is it strannon or banahan <laughs> I don't know. The, the idea that I could be, I believe it's entirely, how big was enough of you? So it's entirely possible his father did know my mother because they were there at the same years. And that would make sense, right? So from there, I can paint a few nightmare scenarios. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you, Lee, as always. And uh, I just, I just, I've been on a number of times and I, I, don't want to go with this uh, episode without saying what just an outstanding producer you have in Rod. Um, I've worked with many different producers and, and many different shows, uh, you know, both as on, on air talent, whatever you want to call it, as well as the guest. And uh, he is just outstanding, really. I mean, uh, you're, you're, you're very lucky to have him. Yes, I am. And, and, and that's why I frequently say that. Uh, what a great job. And oh, part sure. of the reason Rod's a great producer for this show is he was a fan of the show. So he knows a lot of the stories and he therefore knows when he sees something breaking the news, he knows who to get on to talk about it, who knows where the story is going. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's turned me on. He sent me links to, to stories I hadn't picked up on yet and, and to, to information that I hadn't uh, caught on to yet. So no, he's, he's, I mean, he's, I'm, when I said the, how outstanding he is, I, I mean, I'm talking substantively as well as you know his technical expertise and is just uh, the great job he does in terms of scheduling everything. Really, I mean, yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's gold. I think Rush had uh, no uh, his um, what do you call him? What who was uh, Mr. He called him uh, guys. Rush's producer, Mister. No, what do you call him? Uh, Snurdly, Snurdly. So you have an, oh, Snurdly, you have your yeah. Snurdly and Rod. Uh, you know, which is high praise. Yes. Yeah, he's he's great. Uh, so, uh, th- thanks for saying that, Tyler. We love Rod. So, you're one of the few people who I know for sure can actually say, "Why, yes, I do." In response to the question I'm about to ask, you're one of the few people out there who can answer affirmatively. 
if I were to sit at a bar in Sioux Falls and say to the person next to me, do you know what it's like to have a person you know arrested and on TV constantly? Most people say no. Does that make sense, Rod? Normal people don't know what it's like to have a person they know in national headlines and under arrest, right? How would they? Does it make sense, Rod? I mean, uh, Tyler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, just have anybody you know arrested and put through the process, but then also to have it be constant news and, and major, you know, breaking news headlines. Uh, yeah, no, that's it's a unique experience for sure. That, that's right. That, that's come up over the years for me since I've been in the news business. But I know you could answer firmly because, of course, you know Roger Stone. But think about this, because I was so thrown off by it that Bannon's guilty and that despite what I think of Steve Bannon, which is a mixture, he's a person. And does that make sense, Tyler? We're just on a human level. He's a guy I know. And you've got, as someone who grew up near the Biden family, you've got to look at this stuff with Hunter Biden. I mean, I, I make jokes about his mess, his pictures, and so on, because I can. But it's easy. I don't know the guy. You've got to look at it differently growing up next to the guy. And it's got to really hit you as weird. I, well, how does it hit you? emotionally when you see the Hunter Biden stuff? Well, you know, you you raise an interesting point. And it was something I sort of became a nerd to um, a little bit when I worked for Newt Gingrich, um, not 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 in terms of the criminality aspect, but the, the knowing someone in this in this case, working with someone up close and and then seeing how it's portrayed in the media in the national media, how the, what the distortion is. Um, in, in the case of Newt and in the case of, I mean, uh, you know, I personally can say also that I've, I've you know, been arrested and, and carted off and eventually imprisoned and by by the Bidens, no less by Bo Biden and his, uh, you know, his his uh, drug task force and all that that uh, jazz. But, you know, meanwhile, Hunter's just uh, sucking down lines, uh, you know, late night. But but nobody nobody touches him, of course. That being said. Getting that out of the way, you know, it, it's it. I, I think about that every so often. I, I sort of look up and think, and if someone's with me in the room, I'm like I cannot believe I like, you know, this guy. It, it's more. It's almost not that I feel uh, specifically for like an, sort of empathy or something like. How is he feeling? What is he thinking? Or what is this? You know, what is this to Hunter? Uh, it's more like I can't believe this guy is is now like just literally an international you know, known, known the world around the globe, you know, that someone that I grew up with and whatever, I mean, I knew he was the son of a Senator, but I mean, now he's in his own right, clearly an international, in some ways, icon of degenerate, uh, you know, drug addiction and just total, uh, debauchery, um, and, you know, amoral, if not certainly amoral, not immoral, uh, be, you know, degenerate behavior on every conceivable level. Um, and it's sort of like it's just weird. Um, I don't feel for him, for at least for Hunt. I don't feel for him on a on like a level um, 
like I might have a few years, like I did when he was thrust, when he was more paranoid, frankly, for years, they were, they were, I mean, the, well, particularly Hunt would, I mean, he was so just terrified of being exposed for anything, like even just, you know, oh my God, you, you know, they're out smoking a joint. You can't even be around that, you know, uh, they, they called Bo the senator, you know, the senator, you know, what, what if somebody sees, you know, just this like over, it was this over uh, exercised paranoia of being exposed, which, which to me can, I mean, he would change his number like once a week. Um, to me, the fact that his acute paranoia back, I mean, this is probably 15 years ago, you know, now, <laughs> I mean, my God, for someone who's paranoid about being exposed, like the things that he did and now the level of exposure, I mean, who, I can't think of anybody. Can you think of anybody, Lee, that you know that's a celebrity or anything that was at this much personal, like, I mean, you know, literally down to your genitals, everything you can think of just splashed across international, uh, you know, news and national news and the internet now. And just, I mean, all your personal photos and all, and of course, which his personal photo collection and the things he put in there were, I mean, it's, you know, all the worst sorts of stuff that probably 99.999%, well, maybe not that much, 99.9% of the population of, you know, general humanity don't do. I mean, the, you know, people aren't running around. I mean, I don't want to get into the the details of it. I mean, the pictures speak for themselves, but that's the, just the bizarre uh, and and lewd stuff that went. And then, of course, didn't bring in the drugs, weighing weighing, you know, uh, almost an ounce of of big chunks of crack cocaine. Who does that? <laughs> this kid was so paranoid. Well, that well also, just, I, I just me. thought, and I'm not asking you to, I'm not asking you to comment because you'd have no way of knowing, Tyler. But I thought to myself last night, I wonder if on some level Hunter Biden gets off a little on the fact that everyone's seen those pictures. Oh, yeah. No, I think Does it makes sense. Oh, yes. No. In fact, in fact, I came to that conclusion that he thinks of himself now as this like no holds barred, unrestrained uh, rock star you know, ultimate, the ultimate rock star. This is like, you know, he, he's done it all. He's seen it all. I mean, he was running around talking. He would talk to people as I understand it. Uh, and not a number of accounts, uh, sort of shopping his life story to be made into a movie in Hollywood. He would talk to people in Hollywood. My, my life story should be out. should be a, you know, a movie or a miniseries or whatever. And I, and, and that's, it's total egomania. Um, you know, run wild. I mean, and, and, and I think it comes back to this, that he, you know, the boys, those two boys lost their mother when they were, uh, let's see, it was 70. It was like two, two and three years old. And there was a gap there until Jill Biden came on the scene and not that she was much of a uh, sort of a maternal or parental figure uh, to them, you know, that, that, that as they would look upon their mother or really it was, it was their, uh, their aunt Valerie and uh, Jim Biden that, that I guess did most of the raising. But that being said, I think Valerie Biden, she has her own family <clears throat> and, and Jim too, uh, that they're, they sort of were, um, first of all, coddled because, oh, these poor boys, you know, they were given immense amounts of attention at this young age in this traumatic moment of their lives, having lost their mother, this, you know, and being injured. And then suddenly all the attention was on them. 
And they also, at the same time, had a father who was an absentee father and, and, and a stand-in parent, you know, stand-in mother in a sense. I think that that sort of sowed the seeds or sowed, uh, you know, the foundation of this, uh, I hate to say it, it's like the little Lord Fauntleroy syndrome, you know, where it's like, they're going to do anything they want because who's going to say no, because their mother was killed. Uh, you know, their father's away in DC busy. So, you know, I, I just think this sort of license that I never detected in them, uh, at least in Hunter, well, certainly not. Well, it was never overt. It was never like these, I mean, they were never snotty. They were never obnoxious. They were never, you would never get a sense of entitlement from them. But I think with Hunter, it was more like this brewing sort of, I'm going to go and I can just do anything I want ultimately, you know? And it, it plagued him early on with, with, again, the paranoia and fear of being exposed. But then he just hit, you know, the pedal was to the metal when Bo drew his last breath because he had no longer had any, I think his brother, you know, wanting to, wanting to ascend to office. There was exposure there in terms of, okay, Hunter could mess it up for his brother, which he would never do. Um, and when Bo uh, passed away, that was it. It was like, who cares? I mean, his father, I don't think he cared whether it, how it affected his father or whether it affected his father. And yeah. And, and I guess when you're totally they have spoiled, you have unlimited. Periodically on, on TV, you'll see these documentaries sometimes with people who won the lottery mm-hmm. and they win like $200 million or something. And all the documentaries in the same way, it destroyed the person's life. Yeah. You've seen that phenomenon. Oh yeah, and and that's Hunter very Biden. much like it. You know, it's it's he he had un, he had access to unlimited financial resources, pretty much. As far as like someone who is trying to pursue drug use, whatever you know, kind of the debased type stuff. It's like you know, you can't you can only buy so much. I mean, the only it's a good thing he wasn't a gambler, you know, because good lord, you can. I've always said you you can't blow your life savings, your family's entire fortune, whatever on a drug deal or a hooker. I mean, I guess you technically could, but it's not like gambling where people blow their entire, you know, everything they have, uh, with compulsive, um, compulsive gambling. So, but, you know, similarly though, I mean, he just, nothing was stopping him. And, you know, unfortunately I think it very much, if there was a, a moral center to him, which I don't think there was much back. I think he was very much, he's, he's a cipher. He's a product of his environment that he, anything would stop him. Anything would stop him, for example, from bedding down his dead brother's widow or subsequently her sister. I mean, these are, this is stuff you, I mean, this is like, these are like worst case scenarios in terms of, you know, morality and family and propriety and just any sense of decency that we would know as, you know, as a civilization, a society, or certainly that, you know, the great Biden, Joe Biden, as you know, he, with his schlocky stories would recount to you or tell you is proper or not. But, you know, it also, but it really ultimately does expose the hollowness of Joe Biden as any sort of moral anything that it's always been just a front. It's always anything he's ever said in terms of morality or, uh, you know, any of the yarns he spins, it's all just props for ultimately his power and his sort of craven cravings to be the guy who's the center of attention, who's the, you know, the, the shot caller, the respected man, which ultimately I think, 
you know, is the the richest irony because he ultimately will be the least respected of all presidents, the least popular of all presidents, and the most uh, lampooned as as just absolutely ludicrous, as absolutely um, bizarre in the end. He, he is highly respected. He has one demographic, which is people with, with face tattoos. <laughs> He's got that demographic. And uh, that demographic the, the brain damage crowd. He's pro-hunter. Yeah. Well, I was talking about actually, yeah. I was talking about Joe, now, Joe in that instance. I don't think Hunter cares. Hunter, Hunter views himself as a legend. And in many ways he is. But, you know, it's funny. No, you don't. I mean, it's so it's so bad that you don't even see like sort of the avant or whatever you might call it, the alternative, the sort of, you know, countercultural, even they, even there's no like groundswell of like, dude, Hunter's cool. He's so cool. No, no, it's so bad. Even, even people who lead the sort of wild lifestyles are like, Oh God, it's revolting. Well, some people deal with addiction by curtailing the activities. Hunter's apparently trying to win an award. (laughs) The, the debauchies, I don't know. Yeah. But he's trying to be the most out there crack whore customer of the month. Yeah, he's a case. I don't know. Yeah. You know, when you're playing with yourself in an isolation tank and filming it, you've got too much access to technology. Well, hold on. Playing with yourself in an isolation tank while smoking crack, drinking booze, Noting that the isolation tank is in a rehab, a drug rehab. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it's it's almost comical. I mean, maybe there should be something written about his life. I mean, it's like he's he's trying to just like trample every possible barrier, boundary, or limitation, or sense of like, wow, man, have you no decency left at all? I mean, lying to everybody in the process too. And it doesn't. The way he lied to Kathleen. It doesn't seem nice, to me that. Go ahead. That doesn't sound like a cry for help. It sounds like a whoop you make at a strip bar. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like someone having fun. He's not crying for help in those pictures, is he, Tyler? No, he's. Am I, missing he, I, I the, think he's. The, he's. It's a. Save me. It's egomania, and and in a sense, in the bigger sort of or deeper picture, it's like revenge or sort of paybacks against dad for, you know clipping his wings or not letting him live the life he wanted or always it was always always, you know everything had to be about dad's political viability in the future and or or, and eventually bows and i think i think hunter felt he couldn't live his own life and well now we see he is and and has been and i'm sure i'm sure anyone who's a parent can get this Uh, uh on one hand you you want your kids to have stuff and you want them to live a nice life so there's a tendency sometimes to, if you do that too much, to produce spoiled, entitled children. And that's what Hunter Biden is. And so let me turn that to politics broadly, Tyler. How much of that sense of entitlement, which I understand why it happens, right? I understand why parents spoil their kids. But we seem to be in an age where I see entitlement at the center of a lot of problems with the way the establishment left acts. Do you see entitlement being a big societal problem, Tyler Nixon? I see it very much as a generational problem in that 
well, it's it's also a cultural or sociocultural problem because what you have is an entire generation from the millennials into the uh, the Y generation or Z, I guess they are, um, that are have been raised with these helicopter parents who are completely doting um, and have raised in every way. And, and frankly, the education system has jumped in with, you know, the uh, participation awards and we can't let anybody, there's no competition. Nobody can, there's no winners and losers. Everybody's a winner, that kind of, you know, that kind of nonsense. And of course, just the, the affluence of our society at this stage, uh, I mean, with the internet, I mean, I, you know, I, I still marvel at how we used to have to, find things and go places and uh, obtain information back in the day, like the Dewey Decimal System. Or, you know, if you wanted to go somewhere, you had to go to get a map. You had to physically pull out and, first of all, find where you could get the right map. You had to pull it. I mean, just things like that. And I realized, my God, these people, they have no challenges whatsoever in so many mundane things that would temper us back in the day. Uh, but also slow us down and enable us to realize that hey, life—you know—life has its challenges, and and any little thing that could go wrong with that. Were Were you ever in California, Tyler? Did you ever 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 have a Thomas guide? Uh, Thomas, I don't know about Thomas guide. I mean, I certainly have a trunk full of atlases and and uh, AAA maps. Okay, every everyone in Southern California is what a Thomas guide is. It helps you navigate the surface streets in LA. Oh, okay. It's a listing of where all the streets are. And it's a book. It's as heavy as a phone book. And it's it was like 35 bucks. But everyone, if you're moving to California, yeah, yeah. Or you, you had to buy it lost. first thing. Or just like you mentioned the phone book. I mean, look at this. Like if you wanted to find somebody, you they had to be right. listed and you had to get the and they had to be there. You know, you could and you had to be attached to a wire to a wall to a phone. Um you couldn't leave mess. You couldn't instantly communicate. So the reason I'm saying all this is because all of these things are happening that, that have made this generation, you know, expect that like, hey, everything in life will be that easy. You've been handed up all these tools and all these these things that are features of life. So life should be that. You're entitled to have life be that. You know, that's and and frankly. It's actually harder, even I think. So they're they're they you know, are going into this with a sense of entitlement into potentially the you know most uh, worst periods of deprivation, possibly as well as hardship that uh, any Americans have faced in maybe a century. So I mean I feel for them certainly, but it is a major problem. You're absolutely you know you're 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 right on, and it's a problem because of expectations of you know the ability to. I mean, let's face it, um, expecting hardship and going through hardship is that's what makes you strong, you know, and that makes you persevere. And, and, and they're not prepared for this. And as we go through the next hour of the show, I'm going to ask you to expand that thinking to countries and whether countries being entitled is a large part or the foreign policy problem we have worldwide. Do you see? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, with the oh, well, I mean, oh well, the, yeah, that's a design, that's an engineered uh, situation because of you know you, the the aid packages, the World Bank, all these you know, the, you, the monetary funds that that are basically made purposely fed to countries to make them dependent, so they can be uh, you know exploited. It's really diabolical. I mean, it's yeah. Yes, and it, it also I think the 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 attitude. W- when I was growing up, 
I was born in 65. So when I was growing up, we just pulled out of Vietnam. And that was humiliating for the U.S. And I remember the sense of a lot of people in the U.S. didn't know how to deal with that. They didn't know how to deal with leaving war. One could argue maybe Korea, they did that. But it was very obvious in Vietnam, the U.S. did not win that. Yeah. And do you think that shocked a lot of people who were used to the U.S. being more or less invincible? Yeah, after winning the greatest military and global victory in human history to that point in World War II, defeating two in the Axis uh, and you know, the pride and, and the purity, the purity of intention and the and, and frankly, just the the fact that it was such a, a clear cut bet you know, versus evil, the evils of our enemies versus the confused and sort of mixed purposes of anything that followed after that, Korea to a lesser extent, but certainly Vietnam, that people who had this na- sense of national pride, they couldn't believe it. I mean, they just, uh, and unfortunately it sort of flipped. It wasn't that we're good because we pursue good things. It's more like whatever we pursue is good and has to be. So it was like, you know, you, you sort of expose people whose uh, thinking was very perverse or, or, you know, inverted, perverted, whatever have you. It was that, you know, America can do no wrong. No, it's that, that, America does good. That's why we're good. Not because we can do no wrong. We've done plenty of wrong. And unfortunately, the last 50 years since Vietnam has been a, a horrifying um, carousel of all the wrongs that we could possibly do, not only around the world, but to our own people now. Ray Epps being a perfect example. Right. And so it's actually not resulted in a goal I'll bet you and I would agree with. Policing needs to be better in America. Policing and the court systems need to be better. Agreed, Tyler? Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, the whole thing. I mean, it's it's yeah, we could certainly go into it uh, on the other side of the uh, other side of the hour. But yeah, no, there's uh, I, I mean, one of the first things I began advocating from the moment I became was out of the military and law school was criminal justice reform, systemic reform of of the uh, the cops. Right. And I feel like the drug war has been a huge corrupting factor. And let's and let's talk about it more after the break, uh, because it's a good topic. Non-leftist criminal justice reform. It's a discussion you need here. Next on the backstory. Final hour of the week of the show that is an oasis of truth, free speech, and great conversation in the vast, freaking hot, this week anyway, arid wasteland that is the New World Order. This is the backstory. I'm Lee Stranahan, and we're very proud to be joined by a great friend of the show, analyst, writer, cool dude, Tyler Nixon is joining us as guest host. And Tyler was guest last hour. And this hour, Todd Benzman from the Center for Immigration Studies 
and we'll talk about specifically some of the craziness. But the thing I was saying before the break, Tyler, is that I think in a lot of ways, let me put it like this, as a, as a libertarian, not party member, but as someone who grew up as a teenage libertarian, I don't feel the left should own sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Does it make sense? Oh, sure. I've always, I've, believe me, it's been my own uh, sort of internal thought for many years, especially as they've aged into authoritarians and, and uh, totalitarian in many cases, and, and prudish in their uh, sort of nanny prude ways. Exactly right. And let, let's uh, do the boom. Tyler, what's the name of the show? You're listening to The Backstory. Fantastic. Yeah, no. And uh, the, also, if, you, if you've seen, they run these studies in the newspaper and I guess in teen magazines. But apparently this generation is having sex less, but not because they develop morals, just because of all the mess up gender stuff and fear of if you make a pass to someone, are you sexually harassing him? Yeah. And then just being it's, awkward, it's socially be, awkward. Right, right. And so they, Andrew Breitbart used to call the left, and this is you know, before he died 10 years ago, he used to call the left joyless. And he noticed that they were starting to have an inability to have fun on the left. Have you noticed that? It's a really disgusting habit of theirs. That's why Chappelle and Ricky Gervais are targets for them. They've lost their sense of humor, sense of yeah, fun. Yeah. They're humorless is really what I've found, um, which I actually I want to say I am so excited. I, I just got off the phone or got gotten word. A little while ago that uh, my well, I found out earlier today that um, someone I consider a friend, though, we we've, we've only really met and conversed uh, just, you know, a rare instance. Um, Jim Norton is a uh, comedian. He's here and he's here in Denver oh. for two nights. And I got in touch uh, with him through through a friend uh, and uh, he uh, put me on the guest list for tonight. So I'm going to be in a few hours here going to see Jim Norton. Uh, do his stand-up. He's one of the one of the few people, uh, well, certainly one of the one of the titans of comedy that's still around. That uh, he'll he'll he he will go his body, and it, there's nothing he like 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 his good friend Patrice O'Neill. There's nothing he won't he won't uh, take on with comedic. Uh, Jim Norton, very funny man. The yeah. uh, he he not only was a respected stand-up, but he's made so many classic radio appearances he's got a big career it doesn't pay really but in radio oh yeah he's absolutely you've heard a lot of jim norton's classic radio guest spots right oh yeah no i mean that's that's how i came learned learned who he was and i mean now he's got his own show um and that's where i first met him was what we were um roger i was working with roger when we were putting out stone's rules in uh, 2018 and he has the Jim and Sam show on the XM uh, Sirius, which is, uh, um, you know, he's sort of 
finally moved into his own into his own instead of being on Opie and Anthony or uh, whatever have you. But no, he was he's like yeah he's like really really just I mean his <laughs> yeah you can go back on that's what I love YouTube God bless him I mean uh, you know for whatever the censorship you can still go back and listen to these classic appearances and some of them are as hilarious as they were 15 years ago more so even considering what's gone down since yeah absolutely so so that's that's good jim norton is in denver you're saying yeah he's in denver the next tonight tomorrow night at the comedy works i believe downtown so if you're in denver and you want to catch a comic genius and just one of the more irreverent of all you know again nothing is off limits for jim and he's self self-effacing and he's just a he's he's funny as could uh, yeah, really just yeah, like that uh, cracks me up. Um, unlike, frankly, oh, there's very few left uh, that aren't either corny or uh, you know politically so politically uh, aligned that it's not even funny anymore. It's like what I mean. The, 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 you speak of the leftists. I mean, talk about just despoiling everything. My God, just butt out, people. You know, it's like you, you don't. You, yeah, I mean, art is the opposite of what they are. You know, art is is freedom, is limit, you know, without limits, is exploration, creativity, and that's not what they are. They're about confining, confining, chopping, narrowing, limiting down to where it's like, you know, you're 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 some sort of uh, experiment living inside this like box. I mean, it's like uh, like in Clockwork Orange or something. You're forced to, you know, your your eyelids are held open and. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some really warped. I mean, it's I, you know, people say, oh, liberalism is a mental disorder. I don't believe that. I, you know, I've never believed that. First of all, liberalism. I don't even use that term. It's it's leftism. It's whatever. It's uh, authoritarian, uh, egomania, megalomania. But I, you know, I've I don't think it's that it's a mental disorder. I just think that a lot of mentally disordered people sign on to it because it's their natural uh, ideological, political, and partisan home. When you've got serious personality defects and you're warped and you're, you know, sadistic or self-absorbed or uh, egomaniacal or you're uh, you have total sociopathy and psychopathy towards your fellow humans. Uh, I mean, boy, the left is just I mean, it's a cornucopia of these people and they're dangerous. They really are. They're like a, uh, a, a self-propagating. I mean, the the impact they have is far beyond their actual numbers, you know, because they're they're not they're not more than nineteen or twenty percent, and probably the really seriously deranged ones are only maybe two percent. Yet they see, can do serious damage, and uh, unfortunately, complacency is the is going to be our enemy. We got it. We got to realize these people. They got to be stopped. I've said they're not going to stop until they're stopped. And we just got to figure out how that's going to look, you know, without, uh, frankly, get turning ugly and, and really ugly. Like, you know, this guy jumping on stage with Lee Zeldin clearly was uh, a meant some sort of mental uh, had had mental issues. I mean, you could just tell. I mean, just the, the type of guy who sort of would stand there. And then I mean, even though he didn't act aggressively in the immediate. I could see someone like that exploding in a in a frenzy of violence, just like in a in a split second, you know, just literally, just just like totally mutilating uh, someone like Zeldin if given the chance, because you could see there there was like a certain rage and confusion at the same time in his face, or some kind of rising, boiling, you know, percolating anger, and uh, 
Yeah, it's 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 rough, man. We I mean the good people, the sane people have a rough have a rough rough days ahead. And what and what I keep coming back to is like once God willing, we depose these people, at least the it, it, initially the uh titular leaders, the Bidens, Pelosi, she, all these people, these these uh parasitic um can never get rid of them. Um, sort of, uh, you know, when they finally either die off or we get, we we're able to depose them. What do we do with all these these minions and these demented people who are so diehard true believers in this crap, who believe like have no sense of humanity, have no humor, have no, as you said, they're humorless, they're joyless. Um, what do we do with them? Because they're not just gonna they're not just gonna switch off. I mean, you know. Let me let me say explicitly what you're hinting around and tell me if you're almost willing to go this far you're describing brainwashed cult members yeah what you're describing is democrats are essentially they act emotionally like brainwashed cult members well okay so so there's there's that well there's that element but i'm more concerned about within that the 10 percent who are the brainwashers who are the actual leaders the cult leaders the you know the 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 aggressive the ones who are the diabolical plotters who are uh, very dangerous far more dangerous you know because of they're able to uh, manipulate human beings on a mass scale and I mean look yeah I mean yes brainwashed I can deal with total psychopath ruthless diabolical uh, completely uh, you know unwill uh, no no borders boundaries or limits that's who I'm worried about. Or those people, because they're not just going to go away. I would say when you break down people to get them in the cult, a few of them are going to go on their own. They're going to break even. Does that make sense? Yeah, those are the yeah. dangerous ones. Oh yeah, well, and even yeah, even and, they're taking it to this even further degree of like uh, attenuated from a normal functioning person, you know, a decent like civilized human being. And, you know, I talked about them being joyless. And, you know, again, firsthand, uh, Andrew Andrew Breitbart, one of the things I missed when he left, he was fun. He was just fun to hang around. Oh, and, you know, God. Roger Stone, I get that same sense of You know what I'm saying? When you're around Roger Stone at a conservative event or something like that, you never know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> yeah. And and what, what I think I—, I, I come pops into mind that that is that the kernel or the center of that which also is the opposite of what the left are or what their sort of essential their noose is you could call it uh is irreverence a you know it yes yet yet at the same time it's like you you can't be irreverent unless you are truly reverent of certain things for the right reasons um and whereas the left has this artificial reverence for things that do not deserve to be revered and should not and uh, so they can't be irreverent because they're afraid it'll crash down all their artificial idols. And they're right. Well, I'll tell you, Andrew Breitbart, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that you'll be okay. He hated the Grateful Dead. Hated them. <laughs> he was Absolutely hated the goats. <laughs> right. But, but Andrew also hated Nirvana. He hated grunge. In general, when grunge came along, he was very unhappy. He liked New Wave, even like some punk. He hated grunge. And the term he used, 
and I like Nirvana, so I'm not judging them musically. But I know what he's talking about. What he really hated about the grunge movement is his, the nihilism. Mm -hmm. the, they just reject all values. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that nihilism, nihilism is what he hated about the grunge bands. And I get that. I understand what he's going for. But I thought it was interesting about who he was as a person, that he was a guy who liked to have fun, and but he hated nihilism. Yeah. And that's a I, part of a lot of the problem. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think additionally also, not only nihilism, but like pointless herd mentality, like for the sake of it, nihilism. You know, it's like you didn't come up with this on your own. You just see it as like, oh, this is the cool thing to do is be some, you know, uh, sort of surly uh, who cares about anything. You know, like that whole it is, you know, worse than being a nihilistic, I guess, is being a nihilistic sheep probably to someone like Wrightbiter, certainly to me. You know, and I could probably see that's why he didn't didn't care for the dead, the dead or their movement, whatever, because it was it, he probably saw it as very much like a lot of a lot of. Uh, sort of norming or things that were norms that were imposed, you know, Oh, free love. You have to be a certain hippy dippy, whatever. And which I certainly resist that, you know, like, Oh, you have to look a certain way. You have to act a certain way. You have to, you know, treat everybody a certain, you know, take, take things, uh, at face value instead of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you people are urchins. You know, some of you are thieving degenerate criminal hip criminals, uh, itinerants, uh, vagrants and you're, 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 you're opportunistic, uh, and frankly predatory. And I'm not just going to like assume that, Oh, everything's, everything's great. Cause you're a stinky hippie. No, <laughs> you got to do more than the, you know, and they, it's this imposed sort of, uh, like, Oh, we're all supposed to accept each other. And it's like beneath the surface that you scratch the surface that, and it's suddenly a vicious animal. It's like, you know, like protecting their little, their turf and their little, little angle on things. Um, is what I found, you know, frankly, in, in that scene. And I, and I can see that. He grew up in Southern California. So he grew up around the TV and film industry. So he saw a certain kind of celebrity, you know, as just a neighbor, the guy who lives down the street. It's a certain kind of rich person that's in the media. Yeah. Does that make sense, Tyler? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the idea of a celebrity, instead of being someone who's famous because you're celebrated for something that you did that's an achievement or an accomplishment. No, you're just a celebrity. You're just celebrated because you're famous, because you're famous, you know? And that's, that's the, that the whole system is. And as soon as you're no longer in fashion or for some reason, you know, you're the thin thing, that's it. They'll spit you out the bottom. There's no, it, it's completely saccharine high, you know, just, just empty. And, and the, it's got also, believe it or not, some of the Southern California's, the blandness of suburbia. Oh. And uh, I used to live in Burbank, which is a company town. It's a very suburban town. It's a people, it's mostly not the stars, some in look like, but it's the people who work at the studios, the people who carry around lights and, you know, paint things. Does it make sense? The working class of the film industry. And when I lived there, I found out that Burbank High School had become the number one heroin capital <laughs> of Southern California. And it was suburban white kids. 
Yeah. Why? I think because of that suburban blandness thing. It's they're too entitled. Well, why not do heroin? Does that make sense? Oh yeah, it's escapism. Like God, this is awful. This is all there is. And then you know, it's funny that the entertainment capital or whatever you know, where all the supposed arts and like the, the entertainment comes out of this uh, this juggernaut of you know, Hollywood, the film industry, the music industry. Yet, it 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 within its own community, within its like native, there is the most boring. Like, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. It's like, it's worse than, it's like not even vanilla. It's like vanilla ice milk, not even ice cream. You know, it's this like, just there's no true creativity, no like artistic passion. And I guess that's probably what's lacking. And so Tyler, how old are you? You're in your 50s? I'm I'm 50. I just turned 50 in September. Okay. Last September. Happy birthday. So, uh, well, (laughs) so old, old enough and you're on the young side of it, but. When you went to high school, today, when you think back to people, because you know you keep up with people on Facebook or whatever, how many people you knew from high school were heroin addicts? Heroin. <laughs> oh, my God. Zero. What's the number, Tyler? Zero. Right. Total so my zero. number, zero. zero. And if you said we're marijuana even, users, yeah, I'd, even that, I'd run zero. out of fingers and toes. They weren't prudes. But they weren't heroin users. No. My son Shane, he's about thirty. About five people he went to Burbank High School with that he knows, friends of his. He goes, oh him, her, her, heroin users. Yeah. Think about that. And yeah. that's the the slippery oh. slope is real. Yeah. And we, it's, yeah, what, we weren't uh, shocked by. Right. Uh, yeah. You know I mean, and, and because they, there's like a lack of a. I know that when I was growing up, first of all, I listen to music and I think, my God, the mid 80s, the late 80s, like when I was in right in high school, I think the music was just amazing. Like, I mean, there was so much iconic music all at the same time. On top of the fact that I don't know, you had a reason to be ambitious and to live and to want to, you know, get out in the world and, and experience it and elevate yourself and become some, do something with your life. I mean, nowadays, I mean, I, I, I really, I feel for the, I feel for the youth today. Uh, you know, I think they can't be, they, it's hard. You can't blame them. You can't, I mean, they didn't create the culture and the environment in which they have been raised. And unfortunately though, they're, they're facing this, like, uh, yeah, you can just feel there's a deadness to it uh, and a weight too. And the left just, you know, is on a political level, just, piles it on and makes it worse and you know that's why i guess you see a lot of radicalization it's like you think well you know what it also sucks i might as well be an angry radical that's really the out you know instead of uh you know it's like just f it all i guess is the attitude and it's dangerous very dangerous because you can't counterbalance that with kids who are just sort of ho-hum you know apathetic and don't really see any point because they, they don't see any stake in it for themselves um, because everything is dictated, whether they want to think that their talking points and all the things they've been programmed with are somehow their own thoughts. It's not, it's the, you know, the, the Marxist agenda, this sort of, the, you know, through, through the Maoist, uh, programming techniques. Well, I was thinking about that because socials, their problem, they say the problem, 
is capitalism. Everything, the problem is capitalism. And a lot of the things, I'm sure you you noticed this, a lot of the things that people on the left call capitalism, I wouldn't call capitalism. (laughs) I'd call it at best a mixed economy with a lot of government intervention. The thing that they're pointing to you, you, you know what I'm getting at, Tyler? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, a very central point you're making, it, which is that it, it's funny because if they live in a socialist uh, society, they'd be railing against socialism, some of them. But no, you're, you, what it is is we have, we have corporate corporatism, crony corporatism that and, – and, and capitalism itself is a Marxist term. I mean they, they – and they ascribe right. – Every aspect of a free market system, you know, for better or worse, as capitalism, you know, and it's it's ludicrous because like it's again, they they discount or they seem to somehow remove the factor that makes all this happen in the first place that makes, you know, it's like they, they seem to think they assume everything that, that capitalism creates as it's going to be there whether or not you destroy the system. You know, and, and convert part of my whatever frustration is, is. Part of my frustration is a lot of time people on the left who are anti-authoritarian and anti-imperialist, a lot of things that they point to are good examples and that we'd find common ground. Sane, peop, you know, libertarians yeah. would find common ground with people on the left, but they, but they ascribe it to capitalism, and they don't and, see and, and, that the government. In, in, go, go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, you see well, going with this, right? their, Yeah, their supposed solution is the problem itself. You know, Reagan cut. He 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 had their number. Reagan really knew these people when he talked about the left, and he said, you know, of course, government isn't the solution; it's the problem. Uh, in very simple terms, and he was absolutely right. He's like, and I think you know, the people talk about oh, the corporations and capitalism, the biggest nastiest, most violent, dangerous, and uh, totally out of control corporation on the planet is the U.S. government. And, you know, the problem is that they want to use this corrupt, uh, monstrous hydra to to correct what they think is some, you know, other evil, but it's no, it's the same thing. And, you know, that's, you get into that kind of thinking. It's like, no, I think that's what conservatives, libertarians have advanced beyond these sacred sort of, or these black and white, this thinking that like, oh, it's, you know, there's these clear cut things like they, as soon as you ask them for solutions, in other words, uh, the, the Marxist, the leftist, whatever have you, they go incoherent. It's like, wait a minute, you're saying this is the problem, but, but the thing that you're saying, the solution in reality is interwoven. It's part of it. So it's like, you know, they have, the, again, capitalism's evil, but oh, the state, and the government, you know, the the the, the overlords, uh, you know, the angel, the, the angels of our society, as Milton Friedman asked uh, Phil Donahue, you know, who are these angels that are so better, so much better than all of us that they can run this thing that's going to reform society and make everything so much better and keep, uh, you know, keep marketeers all on the up and up, and there's never any kind of uh, um, predation or. Uh, you know, opportunism or any of that stuff, any of the evils that come with, frankly, you know, you, having a free society and open markets, you're going to have, you're going to have problems. You're going to have people who are taking advantage. 
But hey, you don't, you know, like they're, the baby bathwater thing is very appropriate to, when when talking about the left and and uh, they they I've always felt felt their their entire their way of thinking is crystalline. It's almost like it's like they it doesn't they're not able to uh, uh, reconcile and sort of have fluid fluidity in their entire you know, sort of view of things. It's like nope, okay, let me jump into this compartment of crystalline you know lattice work and then jump over to this one and it's just like. They think it all fits together, but it's just a hodgepodge of conflicting and incoherent um, dogma that's uh, you know completely brittle, and that's that's the, the way they think is brittle. Have you found that? I mean, you can't argue, you can't, you yes. can't argue with them or debate them. They have things that they're especially just they'll the, never, especially this, the establishment left, uh, because the other ones, there's a difference between. Intelligence in the sense of being able to work through, reason through a problem, and then intelligence as being able to memorize a bunch of facts. Yeah. Does yeah, that make sense? Yeah, Some knowledge, people are facts. Knowledge or, or, yeah, exactly. D- right. Data, really, in a sense. And the people, that su- the people that succeed in establishment politics, obviously, are people who are good at memorizing things. They don't, yeah. it doesn't benefit from original thinkers yeah well, memorizing things but also memorizing things as the sort of threshold and once that's out of the way then they're very rat race you know like opportunistic predatory in so many ways these people the way they are how can i take advantage of this situation how can i how do i need to manipulate I mean, you look at how like like the press secretaries that they get up and speak. It's like they're calculating in real time how they can spin and lie and or deceive or or shade or however they need to to do to get to where they want to be, and that's all that matters. You know, it doesn't. There's no greater objective other than their power. So yeah, it's always going to be this um, confined, limited, and stunted, ultimately um, sort of representation of what public life is. But Tyler, I'm going to defend those people in the White House. They have a lot on their mind, including <laughs> whether that one guy at MSNBC is going to like this outfit. Well, it's the it's thing that tough, they're always yeah. thinking about. It's tough to figure out how you're going to take advantage of a total meltdown, you know, a disaster. How do you it's right. like a, the, how do you roast a meltdown? You know? Well, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk immigration during the long, hot summer. Maybe in the arid wasteland that is the New World Order. Coming up, Todd Benzman from the Center for Immigration Studies on The Backstory. Hour of the week for the backstory, and we are on the radio in Washington, D.C., 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joined now by the great Todd Benzman from the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. Hey, Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. Great to have you on. So, let me ask you a, a, a just a broad question first. It's very hot in Texas. Uh, I saw 110, 
115 some places. And I also saw a footage a few days ago of the biggest crowd of people I'd ever seen walking across the border. Did you see the footage? I know I'm asking you a vague question of, of the very big crowd. Did you see that, Todd? It was making the rounds on Twitter. Yes. Yes, I did. I saw, uh, I think that's Bill uh, Manuji or from uh, Fox News. That's exactly right. And that's why I think it was getting, but those don't seem like two activities, one activity in one condition. Blistering hot and people walking across parts that are very hot. So is this not predictable disaster? Maybe not another case like where the 50 people died near San Antonio a couple weeks ago. But isn't the people who are encouraging, because there's people whose policies, would you agree, uh, encourage people to come through the desert? Would you agree, Todd? Yeah. The Listen, every year, illegal immigration follows ebbs and flows with the weather and holidays. And in the summer months, typically the numbers are lower. Uh, they usually... Uh, sort of go down to um, you know really low levels, so the lowest for the year. But you got to get while the getting's good, and the getting is really so good right now under the Biden administration that you know, the, the the immigrants have to just set aside their discomfort, their momentary discomfort for a while. They don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, the border is, in their view, open more than. Uh, 50% of everybody who reaches the border is admitted right away and put on buses and shipped to all four corners of the United States. That's never happened before in the history of the country at this at this uh, level. So they, I think there's this sense out there among immigrants that, you know, this is nothing this good can possibly last forever. And I think that's why yeah. seeing not much of an ebb in the summer. I mean, the numbers uh, for May and June are, you know, historic, a couple hundred thousand each month. Uh, they're way, way up there. So uh, I think that's all a, a, a product of facts on the ground that show them that most everybody who shows up gets into the country free and clear. Now, so Todd, let, let me... Let me try something. Let's try a little play acting, shall we? I'm going to have you be the friend who who kind of wants to go to America but is nervous. And I am going to be your friend who knows the system. And I'm going to ex explain it to you. Now, the reason I'm having you do it this way, Todd, is because I want to see if I have this right. So you be my friend who also corrects me if I get anything wrong. Does it make sense? Okay, go ahead. Okay, so here it goes. You're, you're sick, you come to me and say you're nervous. And I say, don't worry about it. Here's how it's gonna work. It's easy. When we get to the border, I'm gonna teach you this thing to say. It's a couple sentences. You basically say you're seeking asylum in America because you're freeing a dangerous situation. Maybe you bring up the cartels, maybe not. 
try to stay as low as possible. Then what they'll do is because you said that, they have to give you a court date and they're going to let us into the country while we're waiting to go to court. Meanwhile, you can apply to get a job, but if you get a job, you're not really going to get in trouble. And that's going to help establish you as a resident later because it's going to take you years to get to court. In the meanwhile, you're living in the U.S. How did I do? Is that, is that what happens? Yeah, you did great. Uh, you missed a couple things. One is that hundreds of thousands are not getting any kind of court date at all. They're just being let in. There is no court date. It's just one day we would appreciate it if you would uh, visit the ICE office so that you can legalize yourself for a longer period of time. Uh, so so that's, that's something new and different. And also, uh, if you are from Venezuela, Colombia, Nicaragua, uh, anywhere in South America, anywhere from Africa, uh, you're guaranteed to get in. There, nothing is going to happen to you. And once you're in, they're not doing any deportation. You never have to worry about being deported because they ended all the deportation stuff. You're good for years. You'll get right in. Good luck. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I almost feel, and I do feel badly for them. Do you know how stupid people are? You're stupid if you follow the rules, right? If I was a dentist, let's say, a Mexican dentist, and I thought I could make more money in the U.S., I could apply for a visa and citizenship, and because I'm a professional person, I'd probably get in legally, but it would take years, right, Todd? It would take me years of waiting. Whereas if I just got into the country and stayed and applied for asylum, I'd still probably get citizenship because, you know, I'm a dentist, and, you know, I, I, the kind of person who gets citizenship, but I do it instantly. I'd be living in San Diego right now and not waiting for three years in Mexico. Does that make sense, Todd? Yeah, that's right. Uh, people in this country who have done it the right way, paid their dues, paid their legal fees, filled out all the paperwork, waited patiently, are absolutely furious to see what's happening. All these people cutting the line by uh, disrespecting the laws that they followed. And a lot of those people are voting Republican as a result, switching parties. Uh, they just can't stand it. I talk to them all the time. Uh, they're going to vote Republican this time around because of this. And what about, do you have any sense how regular people deal with the question or deal with the topic of Republican racism? Because the number one argument <laughs> that Democrats have had for years has been racist, exclamation point. That's really their top argument. And I wonder how that's playing with people who are Hispanic, Latino, I won't say Latinx because it's gross, but people, Mexican, whoever, how is that playing with them, them being told that Republicans are racist or that they're racist if they question immigration? Todd? 
mean, I think that the uh, charge of racism is suffering from devaluation via hyperinflation, right? People have just so overused it and it just becomes meaningless. It's not, it's just not an argument. Uh, so I don't think, you know, listen, um, right after the 2020 election, I went down to the border because I wanted to do a story about why all of these blue districts, uh, they're all Mexican-Americans mostly live down there. Why did they vote for Donald Trump in 2020? A whole bunch of those districts went red, and a lot more of them came very, very close. I mean, they went red for the first time in anybody's living memory. And what I came away with, uh, those, these are Mexican-Americans, is that they didn't buy the racism charge. None, nobody believed any of that about Donald Trump or anybody else, and certainly not them. They're not racist. They're, they're Latinos. Uh, it's, it's really the people that lodge racism allegations uh, are trying to avoid arguing the actual factors and elements of uh, impact uh, from mass illegal immigration over the border. I mean, there are real deleterious impacts about it that are not good for the country, that piss off all sorts of stakeholder groups for their own reasons, and has nothing to do with racism. I'm sure that there is racism. Some people probably are motivated by uh, to, to not like illegal immigration by racism, but I think the vast majority uh, don't. I don't think that's true. I'm going to jump and in also, here, Lee, if, if you don't mind. Uh, Todd, this is yeah, Tyler Nixon. Of course. Go uh, ahead, Tyler. Uh, and uh, thanks, thanks for joining us. I, I want to just commend you and uh, the CIS for the work you you all do. I mean, it's just you know, thank God for you <laughs> to to keep the uh, you know to keep keep this issue in the forefront and to uh, to advocate as you do. Um, and you know, obviously, you track data. I have just a couple questions for you. And it, you know, it's interesting you note that because it's like, I mean, only the left could come up with a notion that that. Uh, opposing an invading force in your country is somehow racist, you know, like, oh my God, we're being invaded and we oppose this. Therefore we're racist against these invading, these invading forces. And again, it's not immigration. We are being invaded. And, you know, it's just, just, just as you would be burglarized in your home at night, if someone uh, invaded your, your space. Um, that being said, I have just have a couple of questions. Is there any tracking of um, attrition rates in terms of like people who come into the country initially, you know, because it's open as they are now flooding in, who either can't cut it, they can't make it, the conditions are too hard. And so they end up leaving the country, whether it be go back to their own, you know, uh, country of origin or just somewhere else. Or, uh, you know, is there been any way, any way to track that? Or is there any kind of statistics on that? My second question is, uh, is there any attempt to, um, put uh, numbers to the impact, because when I, when I see these people flooding across the border, my thought is they need food, they need supplies, they need you know basic sundries, they need housing. So they're now competing against Americans in an already inflationary economy. And let's not kid ourselves. The inflation we're seeing is just as much a result of millions of people pouring into the economy and having to be fed and having to you know 
compete and buy or somehow obtain the same basic living necessities that we do. So I'm wondering if there's ever been uh, any attempt to sort of uh, put put a um, you know a metric to the inflationary costs uh, to every American for you know every single one of these uh, um, invaders, illegal immigrant invaders that come across the border. Those are big questions. Um, well, let me let me just start by saying that uh, Jason Richline of the Center for Immigration Studies recently finished. A, li- a literature review of academic journals of all of the major studies that show economic impacts of mass illegal immigration to the United States, and that uh, he he found uh, I'm, I'm I'm encapsulating here briefly, but what he found is that you know it's not one monolithic answer that there are some sectors of the economy and some sectors of the society that are losers, big losers, might be, um, you know, labor, unskilled labor uh, in the service sector. Uh, And then there are winners, people who own the means of production, who, you know, have factories, uh, they're able to pay less, Uh, they're going to make money because they're not paying as much for labor. But that, um, in general, the drain on uh, tax-paying, taxpayer-funded welfare safety nets uh, goes on for, I don't know, an average of seven or eight years per arrival. Wow. Uh, so it's not a permanent drain before they start to become productive themselves, but that if you just have this continuous flow, yeah. uh, then it's a bit. It's a big net drain that is far exceeds any taxes that that same population uh, pays into the system. Right? It's a net. It's most definitely a net drain on the economy. And there's there's really good studies and good reporting. Uh, but you know, uh, illegal immigration is supported by elements of both parties because. You know, it grows the economy in different ways, too. Uh, people can charge more rents. If you're a landowner, you get to charge higher rent uh, or, you know, it drives up housing costs for home builders and apartment builders and Section 8 subsidized housing buildings, building and that sort of thing. So there's a segment that's going to profit from, from yeah. this. And there's a whole system. It creates this sort of kind of people. Have, I've seen people put it out there that it's like uh, like a slave force of people who are illegal and therefore in a kind of captivity. Somebody could turn them in. Somebody could uh, well because something off. Because Todd, this is Lee is isn't one of the things that is an advantage for employers of illegal labor. Not just the wages, which are lower, but controllable. These are controllable people because if they're worried, if they report bad conduct, sexual harassment, whatever, safety violations to the authorities, they'll get deported. Whereas a guy from down the street, if you grab his butt, he might call the cops, right? And and legal, does, does it make sense? 
Isn't the controllability of the labor hmm. one of the things that makes this worse for everybody? Right. I mean, I guess, I mean, there are a lot of reasons or good arguments for uh, combating and reversing and blocking and deterring and ending mass illegal immigration like this. For one thing, there's a reason why no other country in the world does this. All countries that exist try to stop illegal immigration because it ruins uh, so many different elements of your society. Quick influxes of populations, foreign populations, is, is unwanted uh, and always has been, and it's universally unwanted. So to have that in a country, uh, and your best argument against it is that you're racist, uh, <laughs> just doesn't um, – it doesn't get at any of the issues, and it, it um, shuts down debate and uh, understanding and comprehension that we all need to be able to kind of figure out what the policy should be. Um, so yeah. nobody's happening. I don't think anybody voted for what's happening. Nobody knew when they were voting for Joe Biden or thought that, you know, this kind of thing was going to happen. But two million people are just are all of a sudden inside the country, at least in 16, 17 month period. And most of them will end up being illegal, illegally present. They are not going yeah. to get asylum. And, and million in another 16 months, and by the end of the term, seven, maybe even eight million people. That's like a city the size of Los Angeles. Did anybody vote for that? Yeah, it's a, it, it also, also I, th I think, brings example. up the, uh, the, uh, the polit political and ideological and logical incoherence or self inner contradictions of, you know, the sort of statist left, the big government left in that, you know, they can't shuttle these people in here quickly enough on the premise that, oh, well, we can, they can all just circumvent this giant hunk and regulatory and administrative leviathan that we've created. It's like, <laughs> it's like, what is it, boys? You know, what do you, what do you, what are you going to have it? Do you want everything regulated for safety and all this stuff? Or do you just want to like flood these people in who are completely out of the purview of all your giant regulatory state? Well, Todd, let me say great questions. And before I throw it back to Todd, uh, I, I think also, one of the contradictions, the Democrats talk all the time, establishing de Democrats, about their respect for the rule of law. It seems to me like our immigration system's problems aren't necessarily that we don't have enough laws, but isn't it in many cases that the laws we have are not in any way enforced, Todd? Well, yeah. Uh, it's So, you know, the liberal progressive uh, piece of the Democratic coalition believes that the laws are um, in opposition to uh, human, human values, that the, that the laws themselves are akin to like Jim Crow laws from the South, and that they have to be either overturned or ignored. Or uh, another way of looking at it is like the federal um, laws against marijuana which everybody ignores. 
uh, and that states ignore. And but they're on the books, but nobody uh, enforces those laws, and they're still on the books. They look at immigration law like that. These are uh, inhumane and cruel laws. Enforcement uh, of borders is, uh, you know, it's a, it's against civil rights and civil liberties. So, so they they believe it's okay to ignore them. To to uh, you know, th- these are inhumane laws. Let's ignore them like we ignored Jim Crow Jim, Jim Crow laws. That's what's happening. There's an economic reason uh, the Republicans uh, will ignore those laws, and that's because they want they want uh, the labor. They need the labor. It's free, uh, cheap, free labor, and so they don't want these laws enforced. I can cite chapter and verse about about which ones they ignore and uh, all of that sort of thing. So. Yeah, not to excuse the Chamber of Commerce's desire for cheap labor and off-books labor, um, you know, that's something that can be worked out economically with, uh, you know, with the market can work that. Whereas, you know, the, the beneath or whatever, the overarching um, disregard for immigration laws that the left, the progressive left, um, displays is part of their larger disdain for national sovereignty and identity, which is really. Uh, a deeply uh, disturbing and unsettling view of things. It's sort of this uh, just uh, power rules and whatever we say goes, and we don't even have a national identity anymore, and we certainly aren't going to protect our borders and have a country, really. It's whatever we we determine to be humane or human rights, um, you know, and that's that's really where they're coming from. There's no no way to work that out. That's just, uh, that's an ideology. No human being is illegal is what they'll say. Yeah. That's what that's all about. And that's just right. semantics. You know, it's again, they're, it, it, that's why I think we should just call them what they are, invaders. Well, Tyler, you know what Ozitlan is? Ozitlan. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that term. I don't – you'll have to bring okay, me up Okay, Todd, to you're familiar with Ozitlan, right? Go ahead. Tell me. Okay, Ozitlan is a lot of the groups on the Mexican side, MALDEF. Yes, yes. Uh, and so on. Believe in Ozalon. They oh, believe okay. the land, California, oh. New Mexico. Like a reoccupation. Uh, part of Texas, right, should be given back. It's taken from, as one sign I saw outside a Trump rally said, make America Mexico again. <laughs> That's what they want to do. And Ozalon is a separate country it would be, Tyler. They used to be California, Nevada, Arizona, and so on, and would now be Ozitlan. Does that sound right to you, Todd? Uh, I have heard that. I've heard that. Uh, and there are there are probably uh, ex- ultra-Mexican nationalists who hold that view. But in this particular crisis, uh, we should just remember that Almost 50 percent of everybody reaching the southern border is not from Mexico or even from Central America. They're from they're coming from 155 other countries from all over the world. This particular immigration crisis uh, is uh, really unusually multinational, something um, we haven't we have never seen at this level of portions before. I'll just point that out. 
and it's it's turning their our suppose that our our vaunted melting pot into a boiling cauldron of social disorder. Well, I mean, I've met immigrants down there from just about every nation of Africa, and many from the Middle East, and people from Bangladesh and Pakistan and. Uh, from China and India and Nepal. And I mean, it's really an unusual uh, smorgasbord of nationalities. Um, They're all coming. They all heard about the border being opened and they're coming for it. And Tom, we're almost out of time and we're closing out the week. Let me just end with a simple question for you. What is a warning sign to you when you're reading a story on immigration in the mainstream media. Is there any warning sign, catchphrase that they use, something you can warn people about so they don't get taken in by fake news about immigration? Todd? Oh, um, well, in the regular media, first of all, there's not uh, very much coverage. Uh, So um, it's really what you won't see in there, which are depictions of volume. You'll never see You'll rarely see uh, numbers showing just how vast it is. And also, you'll, uh, if you ever see talk about root causes for this, uh, that's, that's going to, you know, the, uh, climate change and uh, a bad coffee crop and a hurricane, <laughs> presidential assassination in one of the countries or something, that is uh, cover or fig leaf for. Uh, that it's these are Joe Biden's policies that did this. So uh, the root, the the whole root causes uh, cover story is bogus, and I think definitely people should recognize that that ideology about root causes is nothing new. The Europeans have been doing that since the 1980s. Uh, they've had this uh, root causes policies where they're handing out cash to all these different origin countries in the hopes that they can ameliorate those push factors so that nobody will want to come. So that's it. We're out of time, Todd. Unfortunately, people have been warned. Todd Benjamin from CIS.org. Thanks so much. Great appearance. Tyler Nixon, a dose and a half of Tyler Nixon. Great appearance. Great conversation with the great Tyler Nixon. We'll be back next week on The Backstory.